0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Well, good morning, City on a Hill. How are we? Good. Good to be with you. Uh, it's, we have the great chance uh, and get the book today of Preaching to preach one of my favourite sections in all of Scripture. Just this short little section and today just one little sentence within it in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, I think it was about six years ago since I was last here uh, to preach. Uh, you guys have all aged fantastically, uh, but as we prepare our hearts to hear from God's Word, why don't you pray with me, that would be great. Almighty God, we praise you for this opportunity we have right now, a moment to open our Bibles, a moment to hear from you, a moment for your Holy Spirit to come and serve within us and a moment for you to point us to Christ. And so Lord, we ask, would you make him as big, as bold, as beautiful as he really is to us today? Use this sentence, use this passage, use your word to come and strengthen us, to change our singularity us, ask this in the mighty name of Jesus and all the people said, Amen. Amen. Well do turn with me please, if you have any bibles to uh, the book of Colossians uh, chapter 1. And as you're getting there, let me uh, introduce what we're going to talk about today, just about uh, telling you a quick story. This year I've been a part of a uh, emerging leaders cohort with a, a group of kind of pulled together young leaders from different denominations and different states around Australia. And, uh, just recently they kind of, uh, had us all come together uh, interstate, and so uh, went up to Queensland to be encouraged and edified at a, at a conference, and, and then obviously I had the, the return leg uh, and the journey back home by plane. And on that journey I had something happen to me that, that's never happened before. Uh, as I was in line scanning my boarding pass and you know, everyone's there and everyone's really tired and um, everyone's scanning their boarding pass and uh, up pops the, the green tick and, and the kind of positive sound and the person scoops on through and they're told which way to go to get on to the plane. I come up in line and I scan my boarding pass and I hear uh, boo-boo and a uh, big red cross comes up on the screen and I think, Oh, I, I'm in trouble. Uh, but, but it turned out it was actually, it was actually good news. It, it was actually that I had been allocated a very important seat. I had been allocated seat 1A on the plane. The very first time in my life I had, had a chance to sit at seat 1A. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it all became clear. Why the Red Cross? Why the be big sound? Because someone had to come and talk to me. And, and so the, the flight attendant uh, said, oh, Mr. Coombs. You've been allocated seat seat one A. Uh, it comes with great responsibility. You really should that responsibility. Uh, and like I said, I kind of steel myself, I'm ready. And, and I ready. and I was told what, what to do about sitting there at the emergency seat, about uh, or the emergency exit there of seat one A. And so I, I kind of popped, and jumped on, onto the plane, boy, my new responsibility, alert to save the lives of these 200 innocent people who were travelling with me on the plane I settled into seat 1A and I, I took my position there and then the plane took off and, and let's be mm-hmm. honest, it, it had been a couple of days and it was a return, journey home no, and, and so 30 minutes into the flight, I fell asleep. <laughs> the laboring was too much for me and so there I was conscripted to save the lives of the entire plane and I it off and was asleep, the plane was in trouble. Uh, and thankfully, the picture the story, there were no emergencies. Uh, we got home safely, 90 minutes late, thanks to Jetstar, but we got home thankfully. Uh, but i start by that story, and then sharing that journey, uh, because even, uh, I don't know, some of us have just met for the very first time, I, I know something about you, uh, because I know it's true uh, about me, and that is that, that all of us have this tendency, this inclination, this, we're, we're prone, to fall asleep to some very important realities and responsibilities that all of us have been given. All right, maybe it's not the literal sleep of me there in seat 1A, but the reality is that you and I, we are unable to multitask in our hearts. And so often what happens is that our hearts distract us or we get focused in on, on something else and our priorities shift and we lose sight of what we should really be focused on and the important realities and the world. we're prone to instead focus on the trivial or the superficial or the temporary or the present. That just mean, or, or is that something that I think we might have in common here? And I bring that up because today we come to this short but sweet letter in the Bible that I send an a shorter and sweeter little passage there in it that's very important. And it is loaded with important truth. And important realities that has been written for its original hearers' and for us, to, to wake us up to what our lives and the responsibility we've been given in them are really all about. 20th century author A.W. Tozer, he once wrote, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about him. What comes into your mind when you think about God the most important thing about you, perhaps for the sake of the text, what comes in your mind when you think about Jesus, the most important thing about you? The last few months, uh, we as a, a movement of churches uh, have been walking on through that uh, uh, much trepidation of a series, left and right, and if you want to go any near way like mine, uh, you might that each and every week of we left around seems like we have to be reminded again and again because we're talking about these topics that have affected who we are as humanity. We have to be reminded again and again uh, that we're made in God's image. That we're being made in God's image. Being made in God's image. being made in God's image means that all of us here, whether you've been here for five minutes or five years or fifty years, means that you're in some sense whether you know well, not, you're in a relationship with God. Some of us here are perhaps in an estranged relationship with him. Some of us are in a strained relationship with him. Others perhaps in a strong and steady and reconciled relationship with him. But all of us are in some sense of a relationship with him. And today we turn to this just one sentence. Colossians 1, verse 15. And it exists here for us as a bit of a lightning bolt to wake us up who we are but our responsibility as God's image bearers, but even more than that, who Jesus is. What it's all about that he is the image of God. Not just sharing a, a common reality of being made in God's image, but an exclusive, unique reality that he is the image of God. And set the scene as we enter into Galatians, and we're gonna be journeying in all the way up to Christmas, uh, this little book was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, uh, a town there in modern-day Turkey. And Paul himself had never actually met these people. He was writing, uh, his friend, it, we, we understand, had perhaps planted the church there in Colossae, uh, a and, and Paul here has heard some things about the people there in Colossae and decided to write them a letter with his apostolic authority. And he'd heard these things that sounded concerning, so he wrote this to try to wake them up. He had things that apparently these men and women who uh, just sometime in the last 30 years before writing had, had received the message of Jesus, look back to it. And that it suddenly their lives changed by him. They heard that Jesus had lived, had died, and had risen again. But over that time that started to, to fall asleep to that reality. And instead that started to move it elsewhere for security. saying, you know, seeing that uh, and giving people solutions to finding that security and that control. And so that was kind of saying, hey, hey this, this Jesus stuff that you're already on that, that, that's all good. You, you can keep that Jesus stuff but make sure, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be mature if you really want to get that sense that kind of, you, if you and your future are in control then you've got to add a little bit of more juice to the cocktail of your convictions you've got to add in a little bit of, of kind of celebrating this festival here and, and performing this particular religious ritual and fasting on this particular time. And he worship some angels as well. And if you could do all those things with that good stuff about Jesus, said hey, you, you're, gonna, you, you're your the future, sure. you, you, you're, you're safe. You're secure. And in some ways, that's not too, too similar to our own day today because all of a sudden we're sense of control, something that can, can reassure us about who we are, about where we are going. That's desire is not uh, religious, it's a human thing. I know tennis player, Goran Ibnizvich, uh, when he used to win a match, the next day he would try to perform groundhog day of the day when he won, to try to perpetuate that the win, that he could have it in control by doing exactly the same things that helped him win the day before, in reality we all actually do the same thing, don't we? Maybe we, we, we look at our, our superannuation account and we think, if that could be on the way, if that could be, be growing, and a sense of security, a sense of control, or we perhaps want to perpetuate a, a consistent use of social media to, to get people to engage with us, to, to reassure us that socially we're, we're going to be okay in the future. There's people around us and people who are friends and who are our support. And we make sure that we've got at least one or two romantic prospects on the horizon to know that just, we're going to be all right. We're not there yet. But we're going to be in the future. We're going to be okay. We're going to be secure romantically. Well, in the ancient world, they had superstition and they had magic and they had mindless rituals to assure them that they're going to be okay. And we think today, we're educated. We're scientific. Do. We don't need all that stuff. And yet, actually, we will just replace it with, with, with other things. For the money, relationships, reputation, we grasp at things because we're looking for security. A life that can feel so insecure. So, for them, whom Paul's writing to, and for us, whom Paul is writing to, Paul signs that what we really need is a dose of reality about. So this section that we're going to go through over the next five weeks, and this one sentence that we look at today, Paul really wants to highlight who it is that is in control. In whom can we really find true security? And so he starts this, it gives us this paragraph about Jesus' his supremacy, his power, and his... In God's image, it's, it's huge. It affects who we are and all that we are called to do. How we think about morality, humanity, ethics, our value, the value of humanity and our worth. But the focus here is Jesus and this unique and exclusive claim that he is the image of the invisible God. I have another quote from the author Tozer. He writes this, Almighty God, just because he is almighty needs no support. The picture of a a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one, yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether of God's free determination, not by our desert, nor by divine necessity. So he's trying to show us the self-sufficiency of God. God is simply there. Self-sufficient, independent, fully autonomous, glorious, holy, mighty, strong, And yet Paul tells us something incredible about this God who is there. He has made himself known to us. He's made himself known to us in the person of Jesus. And we see this in in the stories about Jesus. I mentioned uh, my two kids, almost seven and almost four, one of their favorite stories of Jesus is the story where uh, Jesus decides to get into a boat with his disciples and go across the Sea of Galilee. And I can relate in this story a lot to Jesus because what does Jesus do when he's in the boat? He falls asleep. And being asleep, the disciples, as the storm picks up and the wind starts blowing against the boat, they, they start freaking out. And I think this is, this is kind of the end. They're getting ready to call their loved ones and, and, and this, is, this is it. And so as one last gasp attempt, they they wake up Jesus and ask him to to do something. What's going on? We're going to die, Jesus. Jesus says, what what are you guys worried about? And instead of speaking to the disciples to reassure them, he, he actually speaks to the weather. And he says, quiet, be still. And the storm did what it was told. And the storm Stops and the wind dies down. Jesus can do that because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not a he's not a fake copy of the real thing. He's not just a picture of God. Jesus is the physical, interactive, touchable experience of God. He is God in the flesh. And as that story of Jesus crossing the lake goes on, he gets to the other side and he he meets someone who's possessed by evil spirits and demons and and they know who Jesus is. And they, they fall and fall at his feet and then do what is asked of them by Jesus. And then he continues to go on healing people and delivering people. And then it goes even further and he tells a paraplegic man, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, while He walked this earth, could do all the things that we know to be true of God, who is beyond this world. And so, when we read about Jesus in the Scriptures, we we can understand here what Paul is saying. What he goes on to say, just in a few sentences time, that all the fullness of God dwelt in Him. In John chapter 14, there's this moment where uh, the disciples, are again, uh, are questioning who this Jesus is, and he's just told them some, some outrageous stuff. He says, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And one of the disciples, Philip, pipes up and says, we, we kind of want that to be true, but Jesus, could you just, just show us the Father? Show us who God is. And Jesus doesn't point them over there, he doesn't point them over there. He says, guys, have I been with you so long? And still, you don't get it? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. You want to see God? Look to Jesus. You don't know who God is? We see Him in Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Paul tells us this, and he tells the church here in Colossae, he tells us this because he doesn't want us to minimize Jesus, because that is some, one of those things that we're, we're so prone to do, to domesticate Jesus, to box Him in, to define God only by those truths that, that we want to affirm anyway, whether He existed or not, that are warm, that are comforting. Sure, we'll take Jesus as long as we also get our safe, suburban, comfortable life along with Him. But we shouldn't get our theology from the coffee, cup, coffee cups at Kurong. And we need to get our understanding of who God is from what the Scriptures say about Him. And we should let our view of Jesus be as big as Paul's view of Jesus here. He is God. He is self-sufficient. He is independent. He is without beginning or End. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is glorious. And as we think on that, we should then see how glorious it is that this God has made himself known to us. He didn't have to. He was under no obligation. But God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. He sent His only Son into the world that you might know Him. And that's good news. See, when you and I were being knit together in our mother's womb, when we were being made in the image of God, it's a reality that, that reminds us that, that you have a will. You have a sense of real responsibility and autonomy. But we all know that, that, you, that you and I we've used that will, we've used that autonomy, and we've paved our own way, we've gone our own way. That's, that's left the way that we image God, it's, it's tarnished it. The way we image God is a little bit like the way my kid's bathroom mirror images them, you know, there's smears all over it, there's toothpaste over here, you, you, kinda, you, can't, you can't fully see what, what the image is meant to be, and what was meant to be projected. That's why it's significant that that God has made himself known, that God himself has come to us. Paul says later in Colossians that when we come to Jesus and we we follow him, he says in chapter 3, we, in some sense, put on a new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That when we come to Jesus, we actually get to become who we've always meant to be. We get to Again, walk in line with who we are called to be, with how we were made, with whom we were made for. And so Jesus being the image of the invisible God and Him being made known to us means that you and I can be renewed, we can be restored, we can wake up to the people who we're really called to be. And how that can happen is because of what Paul says next. Jesus is the image of the invisible God God, the firstborn of all creation. So, as we delight in the fact that God has put on flesh, now we read, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, you might have had some time in your life, uh, a couple of guys rock up to your front door and they're wearing nice, neat white shirts and and black ties, and and maybe you've struck up a conversation with them. And, you know, if you did, they would tell you, perhaps using this verse, that, uh, in fact, Jesus isn't God in the flesh. In fact, Jesus is the offspring of God the Father and Mary creating Jesus and so therefore, Jesus isn't fully God, not of the same substance as or essence as God the Father. Well, next time they come, you've got this passage that we just read, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then you've got the verse that comes after it, and you'll get to this next week, but it, we're told that, that by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Very important that we see that the Bible on either side of that little line affirms that Jesus is indeed God. You've got that in your back pocket, but you've also got this. What is it that Jesus, what Paul is actually saying here when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation? Well, small history lesson. In, in the ancient culture, uh, the firstborn son was responsible for continuing the family name, but far more than that, responsible for continuing the family business. In fact, all the family possessions, all the family property, the family net worth. Firstborn sons were essentially born into the job of being an investment manager for the inheritance of the family. And the inheritance back then wasn't lot like what some inheritance might be looked at today as like a a, a bonus, like a cherry on top of your own prosperity that you already have. No, inheritance back then was tied to the land and it was tied to production. It was literally how you were going to perpetuate the family, how you were going to support the generations beyond your day. And so, to be called the firstborn wasn't primarily about birth order, it was instead about this job, this responsibility, this important role that people were tasked with. Have a look at what one of the Psalms in Psalm 89 says about David, and through him, the coming king, King Jesus. Psalm 89, verse 26 and 27 says this, He shall cry to me, you are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And So essentially Paul is saying here, in Colossians, that Jesus, he's been given a status. He's been given a role. He's been installed as king over all of creation. Now, we've seen already one king be installed in the world this year, and that helps us understand a little bit more about Jesus' own kinship, that there are many kings on earth, and yet Paul's saying, God has given Jesus the unique, exclusive, authority, title, office, mantle. He is the king of kings. And so Jesus as God has all the power. And Jesus here as king has all the authority. Jesus as the firstborn has been given the world as his inheritance. Now that is incredible news. If you have come to put your trust in Jesus, and if you have placed yourself underneath His authority, with Jesus being the King, the Lord of your life. But equally, that is very scary news, if you haven't done that. Because the Bible tells us about our predicament, that we've been made in God's image, and yet gone our own way. It means that our hearts are naturally disposed to put ourselves in that place as the firstborn, to put, put ourselves in that place as king over our lives. And I see that in, in my own life. Uh, when I was a, a, a little kid, in my, my parents' house, they had uh, kind of just a classic parental couch, a manky old couch, the kind of couch that I think they were given it when they got married, and it was just the couch that stayed in the lounge. Uh, well, I used to turn that couch on its side and I used to put a rug over the top of that couch and make my own little fort in the lounge room, my own little house. And as a little kid, as a five-year-old self, that was kind of my little kingdom where I could be the king. And then I grew up and I flipped the couch back upside and I got a soft little footy and I used to handball that footy myself, kick to myself and and at the time, you know, I go for Carlton and and, and so the the blues were awesome. So I was was taking hangers like Anthony Cudafitis on on the back of that couch. I'd play through, counting down for 10 seconds to go that I was going to kick a a goal on the siren and and so as my my 10-year-old self, I had a a way of being kind of the imaginary king in in my imaginary kingdom. And then a a few years after that, uh, showing my age here you know computers had now become a become a little bit of a, a thing and um, I had an xbox as well the original xbox it was like kind of you know it, it was big it was really big and loud uh, and so I used to, used to play halo and you know I would, I would be uh, kind of this this guy who could go around shooting aliens and then if I died I'd just respawn and so I'd be back in 10 seconds anyway and so I'd be, I was c- completely in charge of this digital kingdom where, where I could be king, and then, you know, a few years after that, I, I kind of I'd matured out of that stage, of course, and, and, and I got married and, and had to move out of out of home, uh, and it turned out I just, I just bought my own family couch, uh, and then I kind of put an iPad next to me on the couch and a remote on this side, and I had one sport playing on the large screen TV in front of me and one sport playing on the iPad next to me, and, I, and I'd established my own kingdom, again, where I could be king, and so wherever I go, I seem to create a kingdom and put myself in the center of it where I can be King, and the Bible tells us, it gives me an explanation for myself, that, that that's my actual internal default setting. It tells us that it's your internal default setting as well, to assume yourself as the firstborn of all creation. And maybe your kingdom is your home, and perhaps to keep up with the Joneses, it's under perpetual renovation. Because, you know, you update the kitchen, and then you update the kitchen, and now the living room that's connected to the kitchen looks a little dainty and old. And so you've got to update the living room, and then you update the living room, but you haven't got enough room to house people for the housewarming that you're going to have soon. And so you've got to build a deck out the back. And so then you build a deck out the back, and as you're thinking about, hey, I've got an awesome kitchen and a living room and a deck out the back, but now the bathrooms look a bit dated. So on and on, you continue to update your kingdom, or maybe your kingdom is your career, and so you kind of, you can't stop climbing the ladder of your career, because you finally, you want to get to that point where you finally feel like you are now independent, you can work kind of for yourself, you're financially free, you can fire, you can, you can get out there and, and, and kind of exert your power in your own life, or maybe your kingdom is, is your family, and you know, you, you put an undue amount of pressure upon your kids, because they better shape up, because they're representatives of you, they're ambassadors for you, as, as the king in your kind of kingdom, they better, they better look the part, and say, so all of us have the tendency to be the firstborn over the world that we ourselves are creating, but there is only one throne in our hearts, And Paul is telling us that actually, no, you and I uh, are not the king of our own kingdom. Jesus is the one who has the throne. Jesus is the one who has the crown. It is Jesus whom is worthy, and it is Jesus to whom we will all one day give an account. Whether we've submitted to him or not, Jesus rules over all. Jesus stands... Over creation, Jesus sits on the throne. And so Paul wants the Colossians to know, and he wants you and me to know, that in a world with competing kingdoms, and all of them calling for our attention and our affection, the sense and this offer that we get from the world and from our hearts, of a sense of security and a sense of control over our lives and our futures, Paul wants us to know only one thing can provide that. And that thing is actually a person. Jesus. And so that leads us to the implication that I want to leave with you, because if what I've been saying has been true, if our understanding of the context of why Paul's writing this to the church in Colossae is true, if the quote I read from Tozer about the most important thing about us being what comes into our minds when we think about God, when we think about Christ is true, if the truth that's been given to us here in this one little sentence is correct, and the most important question for each of us in our lives is this question I want to leave with you. Is Jesus the King of your life? Is Jesus the King of your life? Reading this of Jesus shows us who He is. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. And in the fourth century, some church leaders got together and they uh, wanted to summarize what a lot of the Bible was saying about Jesus, they came up with what we now know as the Nicene Creed. And it, says, it tells us this about Jesus, it says, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And then it reminds us this incredible truth, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. You see, what's amazing is the higher we see Jesus, the more supreme and powerful and mighty we see Jesus, then the more incredible it will be to us that that Jesus, for us and for our salvation, has come down from heaven. This Jesus has humbled himself, taking on flesh, taking on the form of a servant, and being found in human form, humbled himself even further, to give himself up in death upon a cross. So the amazing thing is that the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, has used all his power, all his authority, he has used his position for you. For you. Now, being in Geelong, I just couldn't help but share it, but this year at the AFL Grand Final, uh, my little man, Axel, uh, we had a great weekend because he was one of the nominees for the Oz Kicker of the Year, uh, which meant, you know, the, the kids that cutely kind of come out and they, they wear the, the uniform and they give the, the medal to, to one of the athletes. My boy was able to do that. Uh, and so that meant he was spoilt with, with lots of gear, which was suspiciously all branded with nab and he was like a walking billboard. Uh, there were three days of, of festivities. Now, it is every dad's dream to have your son on the final Saturday in September, be out there on the MCG, to be able to hold the Premiership Cup, to be in the winning team's colours, to be holding the Premiership medal. And my son did all that. And so my dreams came early. (laughs) And his life has already peaked. It's it's all down here from here. But it was a fitting image to me. Because just moments after the siren sounded, we all know who won. I'm, I'm sure you guys know who won out-trot the little Oz kickers in a a line out onto the MCG. And just a minute or two after the siren is out, they're already joining in on the celebrations. They're already throwing around the confetti. They already have the premiership medals in their hands. They get to celebrate up on the the podium. They're cheering. They're being high-fived, and they're being celebrated by everyone within their vicinity My son got to experience this incredible reward and celebration. And you know what? He did absolutely nothing to get it. He did absolutely nothing to earn it. Others did the work. Others kicked the goals. He's the one in the middle, holding the cup. Others performed Others won the victory. And here the kids get to reap all of the benefit and all of the reward. And it's fitting because the Christian life is just like that. The Bible tells us that when we come to Jesus, we get what we didn't earn. We get what we don't deserve. In fact, we deserve the exact opposite. But we get what Jesus, this Jesus, has won for us. So Colossians 1 points out the incredible reality that God has come to us so that you and I might be brought near to him. Near enough to be saved from our natural disposition. Near enough to be forgiven for our sin. Near enough to be changed as we follow him. So near in fact that by trusting in him, by making him the king of our lives, we would be united with him in such a way that we get everything Jesus did. His death becomes our death. His death Resurrection becomes our resurrection. His victory becomes our victory. And so you're invited to to bask in the beauty of Jesus' performance for you and for your salvation. To, in Him, receive grace, unmerited favor. And so that's the question. Have you received all that Jesus has come to offer you? Have you received This Jesus, as this powerful, this authoritative in your own life. Jesus has won your salvation. Jesus has cemented your future. Jesus has offered you immeasurable hope. And by trusting in him, you get what he won for you. And so that is the offer from the king today. The offer from Jesus today, to receive him. And The way he puts it is to repent and believe in him. To take off the crown from your own head and put it where it belongs on Him. And So maybe you're here and you're a Christian today and maybe you're like one of these Christians in Colossae who have been tempted to start entrusting yourself to other things. And Jesus tells us that that's, that's a reality. There's a, there's a parable of the sower that he tells us in, in the Gospels and where he, he points out that there is, in fact, some kind of people who will, yes, certainly embrace Jesus to begin with, and yet the pleasures and the comforts and the distractions of life might take some of us o- over and we fall asleep to what's most important. So the question for all of us is, is Jesus your king right now? Is Jesus the king of your life today? Today is an opportunity to restore him to his rightful place. Maybe you're here and and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never stopped to consider this Jesus or your relationship with him. Well, the offer is just as much for you as well. To come and put your trust in Jesus for the first time. Paul tells us today is the day of salvation. That we can't sit on the fence forever. Because one day we'll find that the fence isn't with God. He invites us to step off it and come and put our trust in Him. And so repent and turn to Him today. And so if you're here with a friend, here with someone who's brought you along, let me encourage you to talk to them. Talk to one of the leaders that you see up the front. We want to talk to you about this Jesus Because we believe this about Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for these realities that we've just heard about. That you have come into the world in sending your son, Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus We thank you for his power, we thank you for his supremacy, we thank you for his authority and we thank you indeed that all that power, supremacy and authority has been shown to us that we might see you for who you are and we might receive you and all that you offer us. We thank you that Jesus is so powerful that he gave up his life, that we might know him and we might be freed of all we've done and all we haven't done. So I pray, Lord, right now, that we might be able to see Jesus. And I I pray again what I prayed at the beginning, Lord, that we would see him as big and as bold and as beautiful as he really is. We can't do that in our own strength. Holy Spirit, we need you. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come upon each of us in this room right now? and Would you fill our hearts with the vision of Jesus that is real, and that hangs over us, that calls us to take off the crowns of our own life and put it back on you. And so come and redeem us, come and save us, come and transform us, us, come and unite us with Jesus, we pray, that we might receive all that he has done for us and for our salvation. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.